The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. That's a long text. I think uh, I might draw our attention to that interesting conclusion we see at the This is the conclusion, of course, the last cycle of three cycles of three, uh, the last uh, three of the first nine plagues. But think about those words, Moses hearing Pharaoh essentially tell him, you will never again see my face. You know, from from a worldly perspective, I suppose, from the perspective of the ancient Egyptians, that should have been something of a sad message to to have to hear, right? We think about Moses' own upbringing, how he'd, he'd been privileged to be raised up as a, a prince of Egypt, remember the, the son of the daughter of Pharaoh, one who, who grew up familiar with seeing the, the Egyptian courts, probably many times had seen the face of Pharaoh, and indeed here years later he'd been given a special hearing, given these unique circumstances, many times had been privileged to see the face of Pharaoh, and yet here it was all coming to an end. You will never again see my face. What sad news. Or was it such sad news? What did that message mean for Moses? What will it mean for you and me this evening? Dear friends, dear Christians, whose face are you seeking? Think about that this evening as we look at these plagues. Again, this these are the, the, the last of the cycle of three, three cycles of three. We consider the hail, the locusts, and the darkness. You may have noticed again that repeated pattern with respect to the Lord's warning. There's a morning warning, and then there is a palace warning, and at last there's no warning at all. We also, uh, 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 we, we complete something of an upward progression from the depths to the heights. We began in the waters below, the waters of the Nile, and now we conclude all the way up to where the, the luminaries are. The Lord reigns over everything, from the waters below to the, the skies above, even the luminaries without which we are left in utter darkness. Israel's God has shown his sovereign rule over everything, sovereign even over the heart of Pharaoh. It's interesting the way Pharaoh says, you'll never see my face, and Moses says, have it your way, Pharaoh. In a sense, as God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, all he's doing is he's giving Pharaoh over to his own wicked desires. Israel's God is the Lord, sovereign over all, and the whole earth will know it. If you look at that Verse 16 of chapter 9, we note, we really receive there's something about a great purpose statement for us this evening, an important enough verse that the Apostle Paul cites this in Romans chapter 9, verse 17. Here the Lord reveals why it is that he's brought upon Egypt all of these plagues so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And I think we can add to that, to the end that God might among all of the earth have for himself a people who will seek his face. Our message this evening is this, that the God of Israel has shown his lordship over everything, even including the hail and the locusts and light and darkness, so that his name might be proclaimed in all of the earth and that his people might seek his face. I want us to consider that message by noticing in our text, noting in our text, three things, and we could note many things, but three things which we see the Lord doing in order to achieve that great end. And the first is this, that he humbles and destroys Pharaoh and Egypt 
and all of her gods. Humbles and destroys Pharaoh and Egypt and all of her gods, not immediately, not all at once. We see in, in verse 15 of chapter 9 how the Lord has, has uh, not done his work as quickly as he could have. He's been sort of slowly, systematically doing this work, and for good reason. Of course, all that the Lord did was, was calculated to accomplish his purposes. That's very good by way of application, good for us to remember that whenever we see wickedness and evil, even, even evil rulers in the world today, it's very easy for us to forget that our God has his hand in all that happens. He's in sovereign control. When, when evil rulers are committing great acts of wickedness, do we, do we doubt that God's in control? Do we doubt that God is, is accomplishing his purposes? Do we doubt that God will, in his perfect timing, judge them? Do we doubt that, that he's even the one who has given them over to their wickedness, even hardening, hardening them in their sin for his own purposes? doesn't mean that we should do nothing in terms of praying for and doing our part to work towards change and opposing evil and so forth, but it does mean that we should remember that our God is the one who will act in his perfect timing. He will avenge, I suppose, Part of, part of what it means to be a people who seek the face of the Lord our God is to continue worshiping and trusting him to act in and how he pleases according to his perfect timing. Our God is in control, and we see that he's very much in control once again throughout the narrative before us. We see something of a, a, a progression. There's an intensifying of the severity of the judgments that's reflected by the length of the text I was tempted this evening to say, no, I want you to stand while we hear it, just to make us feel like we're suffering along with the Egyptians over these lengthy, lengthy plagues. I decided to show you mercy. But I think it's also reflected in the way in which these last three plagues sort of combine to to bring Egypt to utter ruin. So we see in chapter 9, 31 and 32, how the, the hail strikes down much, but not everything is ruined. But then come the locusts to kind of finish the job, as it were. They, they destroy whatever was left behind. They, they, they come and cover the whole land. It's interesting that the, the locusts are described as being so thick that, the, that we're told that the land was darkened. And that kind of prepares us for the ninth plague, the last of this three cycles of three. The land is covered by complete darkness. Very fitting that we would con- finish in darkness, remember that, that theme of decreation we've considered. In a sense, the Lord in bringing this chaos, destruction, decreation upon the land of Egypt. It's like, it's like, in a sense, Egypt has been taken back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and has been turned into a, a world that is formless and void where there's utter darkness. Think about these particular plagues. We could... Again, mention a number of the the gods of Egypt that are shown powerless against the Lord's judgments. One god was Newt, Egyptian goddess, actually, of the sky and the heavens. Newt, she's she's, uh, usually depicted as a woman bent over the earth with her head in the west and feet in the east, an image which perhaps kind of gives the idea of protection from the sky falling and crashing down upon the earth. There was a god, Seth, who was the god, believed to be the god of the thunderstorms, among other things. 
Seth was believed to be the, the patron god of the pharaohs, particularly of Ramses the Great, who many believe is the very pharaoh whom Moses confronts in this narrative. Shu was another god. Uh, Shu was believed to be the supporter of the sky. Tefnut was the, the goddess of the rain. Osiris was the, the god of the underworld and was believed to be the one who, who uh, worked to bring the, the crops to grow. And Senehem was the god who was depicted as, as having a locust head. And so Senehem was believed to be the one who would protect the crops from unwanted devouring pests such as locusts. And then, as we've mentioned, there, there was Ra, who was believed to be, in, in some ways, the king of all of the deities. Ra was the, the god of the sun, the one who held power over the light. You know, it was a lot of work, wasn't it? Protecting the earth from dangerous hail falling from the sky, uh, enabling the crops to grow and protecting them from destructive pests. It was a lot of work maintaining the course of the sun and providing do- uh, light by day and darkness by night. All of this took a full pantheon of powerful gods, and here over the course of these Egyptians, uh, Egyptian plagues, it's as if, if every one of them is shown to have kind of fallen asleep on the job, all shown to be false gods, vain idols, powerless before the power of the Lord, the God of Israel. Helpless, powerless to save, and here the Lord slowly, systematically humiliates and destroys all of Egypt's gods. And I think, in a sense, it's shown most powerfully, most clearly in our text, in Pharaoh himself. Remember, Pharaoh himself was considered to be divine. He was believed to be the incarnate son of Ra. His servants looked to Pharaoh. They looked to him to be the one who would protect and who would provide and preserve order in the world. Well, how had he done? How was able, uh, Pharaoh able to, to protect his people living under his, his care? Note what we see with the, the seventh plague, particularly kind of his failings are reflected in the way he becomes to be, comes to be viewed by his, his people, his servants. Pharaoh is foolishly refusing to fear the Lord and to heed his word. But some of his own servants are heeding the warning, at least they're acting out of self-preservation. They're not, I don't believe, coming truly to fear the, the, the Lord with saving, uh, with, with true saving knowledge of the Lord, but they are uh, heeding the warning, acting to protect their slaves and livestock as we see the, the destruction threatened from the hail. Marvelous, isn't it? Uh, what, what a testimony of how the Lord was being exalted even before the eyes of all of the people as Pharaoh was being brought Low. We see it also in chapter 10, verse 7, where, where we see Pharaoh's servants pleading with Pharaoh, heed the word of the Lord. They say, let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. And if you look at the end of that verse, what an astounding thing it is for, for the servants of Pharaoh to say to this one who's supposed to be all wise, the divine one. And here they're asking him the question, do you not yet understand? Pharaoh, don't you understand Don't you see how Egypt is being ruined, astounding? The incarnate son of of, of the god Ra is is, is by the perception even of his own servants. He's in utter darkness. His foolish heart is being darkened. Egypt was being ruined. She and all 
her false gods, and Pharaoh himself were being humbled and destroyed while the Lord was working indeed to the end that his great name would be proclaimed in all of the earth. Well, note a second thing which we see the Lord doing, our second point this evening. Note that he, he sets apart his people through whom he reveals his salvation. Of course, we know he was, he was preparing for that great salvation would, which would be revealed. It would be revealed in the 10th plague when he would save his people from the, the destruction of the, of the destroyer that would come upon them. God's great salvation, his deliverance would be revealed at last at the Red Sea. But, but already we see the Lord revealing his salvation even by setting his people apart, sparing them from the destructive effects of these plagues. We saw that last time with the fourth plague of the flies, chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord had said, on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, no swarm of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I suggested a couple weeks back that it, it may very well be the case that for the first three plagues, the people of Israel suffered right along with the Egyptians. That is, they suffered with the, the water turned to blood. They suffered with the frogs and the gnats. This would be a, a good reminder of what we know to be true. Sometimes the Lord is, is working his good, saving purposes in his people, even in causing us to suffer and enduring trials. At other times in his mercy, he chooses to keep us from the effects of, of, of uh, trials. And with these last two cycles of plagues, I think Egypt has suffered while God's people have, have dwelt safe and secure from any harm. So it is, as we see in our text, with that seventh plague, the hail. It says in, in, in uh, 926, only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were was there no hail. I think it's also true uh, by the way, with the, the locusts, even though it's not stated explicitly, the implication seems to be in verse 15 of chapter 10 that, that only where the hail had previously fallen did the locusts then come. The, the, the implication seems to be they finished off what was left uh, by the, the, the hail. So not in the land of Goshen, but only on the Egyptians. But again, what a, what a powerful testimony this was. It is not the gods of Egypt who provide food and, and bring protection of the crops. This was a lesson which Egypt and Israel should have learned so well back in the events at the end of the book of Genesis, right? There it was, a, when famine was coming on the land, the Lord saved Israel and Egypt and the whole world, not by the power of the gods of Egypt, but through his, his servant Joseph, the worshiper of the god of Israel. Well, here again, once again, we see it's, it's, it's the Lord who proves himself the one who gives life and preserves life. He's the one who provides food and provides for the people. And he's the God who saves. And he's the God who reveals his salvation through his people whom he has set apart. Again, in our text, I think we see this perhaps most beautifully shown with that ninth plague. We see this this interesting language is pitch darkness over all of the land of Egypt. Three days, it's described as a darkness to be felt. I mean, this, this was no ordinary darkness. This was oppressive darkness. So, so great that people couldn't even see each other, couldn't even go anywhere for three days. But here again, what do we see in the last part of that verse, uh, 10, 1023? 
but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Isn't that marvelous? There was chaos. There was destruction. There was decreation upon all of Egypt. And here was the God of Israel, the same God who had once spoken and said, let there be light. And here he was shining upon Israel, shining his light upon his chosen people, shining upon those ones whom he was raising up to become his new creations. Think about that this evening, the light shining upon the land of Goshen. And there, as we ought to see it everywhere in the text, but there how powerfully we see Christ and the light of his glory revealed even here in the text. Isn't that true? How ultimately is it that that the light of God's glory would come to shine in this world? How ultimately is it that God's uh, salvation would be revealed through this people whom he had set apart for himself? We know the answer. It's from this people whom God was preserving and would deliver that God would bring into the, the world that one who would be the salvation, the savior, not only of Israel, but of the entire world. Here God was, was giving testimony of the one who would come and who would be the light of the world. Jesus would come. He would come into this dark world plagued by all of the effects of sin, and he would show his, his power and his grace. He would undo the effects of the curse, even by performing miracles. He would heal, and he would feed, and all of this was such wonderful evidence that God in him would bring about, bring to his people that new creation he'd promised. And so, yes, we ought to see the testimony of Christ in that light shining upon the people of Goshen, but we also ought to see the testimony of Christ in those three days of darkness which plagued Egypt. Do you remember what happened when our Lord was there hanging upon the cross? Do you remember what happened to the, to the light? It was gone, right? There was darkness which came upon all of the land as our Lord was crucified. There was the true darkness to be felt. Friends, our Lord was was suffering, was he not? Suffering in ways infinitely worse than all of the suffering which was afflicted upon Egypt by all of those plagues. Isn't that true? Just think about that for a moment. Talk about decreation. Talk about chaos. There was the innocent one. There was the, the Son of God made to suffer the curse, made to suffer all of the eternal torments of hell. The one who was the true Son of God, just think about this. He was the one who was made to suffer uh, even far worse than wicked Pharaoh. Christ was, was judged as if he was the one who had said, who is the Lord? I don't know him and I will not obey him. Indeed, for our, for our sakes, our Lord had to be treated as the one who, it's as if, as if the father didn't know him. The father had to turn his face away from his own son. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he died. In a sense, when he died, the darkness continued, didn't it? For three days, he remained under the power of death. But we praise God that he didn't remain there, that God raised him from the dead, and that when God raised him from the dead, so began God's new creation, even in Israel's Messiah, the resurrected Christ. He became the firstborn. Christ is the one who brings Christ is the one who is that new creation in Christ Jesus. God has indeed 
preserved his holy people through whom he reveals his great salvation, the one through whom the Lord reveals his lordship over everything. And Christ Jesus, the one who raised from the dead is Lord of all. It's as, it's as his gospel goes forth that the, the great name of God is proclaimed in all of the earth. And yes, this to the end, that he would have for himself a people, a people who seek his face. They worship him and they seek his face. That brings us to our last point this evening. The last thing I want us to note our Lord doing in this text He works to ensure that he will be properly worshipped by his people. To what end was the Lord working to deliver Israel? To what end was he revealing his great salvation and calling his people out of Egypt? The great end is worshipped, is worship. The Lord will be worshipped. He must be worshipped. Notice he must be worshipped by all. Interesting what we see in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, right before the eighth plague that Pharaoh is trying to oppose this. He, he protests the thought of Lord, the Lord being worshipped particularly. Of course, he wants to keep the young ones in order to make sure that the people remain in Egypt. But he, he pro- protests the very thought of the little ones going. But here Moses makes it clear on this the Lord will not compromise. Who will worship? Young and old, sons and daughters, all must go and they must worship the Lord in so many words, he tells Pharaoh that they, they must worship the Lord and they must worship the Lord precisely according to his will. You, you see here in these words, you, when you hear these words, you should think about the, the regulative principle, right? How will God be worshipped? Precisely by the means that he has commanded. We've seen, of course, that this will involve feasting and sacrifice. But notice as we come to the ninth plague how we learn that these these sacrifices must be precisely according to the Lord's command. Look at 1026. The end of the verse we see that, that Moses says, we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. There's a good reason why all of the all of the, the livestock must go with us. But you know the the, the regulative principle is about worshiping the Lord not according to our own Invention, Indeed, we don't know. We don't know with what we must serve the Lord, but we look to our God. We look to his revelation. We do exactly what he has commanded. Of course, true worshipers come to him through the blood of Jesus with the regulative principle. It's all about coming to God only through that sacrifice which he has prescribed, coming him to him through the blood of the Lamb of God, trusting in Jesus alone, for salvation and by the grace of Christ. Certainly, certainly it's about worshiping him rightly, even in our formal corporate worship, worshiping God according to his command. But we know, of course, that, that all of life, not only as we're gathered here in the sacred assembly, but all of life is worship. Worship includes everything and all that we do. We are called to, to seek his face. We're to live our lives quorum Deo, that is, before the face of God. As we think about all that we learn from this narrative, of course, the, 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 the lessons are countless, but a couple of things I think we can bring together this evening. I've already mentioned, it, mentioned that is knowing the Lord and worshiping the Lord. Knowing and worshiping. 
dear Christian, in being those whom God has called unto himself, those called to, to seek the face of the Lord. Are you worshiping the Lord? Are you worshiping by coming to know him, coming to know him more and more? It's, it's for this that God created us. That's why I had us uh, think about those catechism questions that we did in our affirmation of faith. We're reminded for this we were created. Our chief end is to, to worship, to glorify God, to glorify and to enjoy him and how he created us to know him. That's part of, part of what it means to be created in the image of God and in, in knowledge, that is particularly in the knowledge of him. He created us to know him. And it's to that, and he saved us. We are being recreated in the knowledge of him. The Christian life is, is a life of being renewed in knowledge. That's what Paul wrote to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. We are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. Brothers and sisters, if we understand that, if we understand that, that call, that duty, the great privilege of of coming, coming to know him, coming to know the Lord more and more. If we understand how blessed we are in being so-called, we will give ourselves zealously to, to do so, to know him more and more. We'll count it not only a duty, but a privilege and a blessing to obey his commands, like the command we see from the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. True worship involves knowledge. It involves all of life, and in all of life it involves mind renewal. We think of, of the great call to worship of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercies, we're called to, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. But it involves coming to, to know our God more and more. Coming to know what pleases our God. As we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. We're able more and more to test and to discern what is the will of God. What is good. What is acceptable. What pleases him. And I think that, the, 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 I say all this in part because I think the, the story of Pharaoh should powerfully help us to see the urgency of this. We should, it should help us to see the strength of that call, that appeal. Think of the, the appeal which the Apostle Paul makes there in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, brothers. So let's see the danger of, of failing to heed that call, the, fail, the, the danger of, of failing to give ourselves diligently to corporate worship, the failure to, to give ourselves to be immersed in the mercy and the grace of Christ, the, the, the danger of failing to live in and to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, you see, to fail to do so really is to walk in the way of Pharaoh. We think about God's judgment, that the decreation chaos that plagued Egypt, is it not seen most profoundly in Pharaoh's own wicked heart? On the one hand, Pharaoh is so clearly shown to be no God at all. He is a mere man, but as he's brought low, he's shown to be even worse than that. In a sense, he's lower than man. He is anti-man, as it were. He's, he's contrary to what God created us to be as, as those made, created in God's own 
image, he shows us how, how, how the divine image is, is marred in the unregenerate. Here, created to know God, but he says, I don't know the Lord. Created to worship the Lord, but he stands in the way of the Lord being worshipped as he continues to demand worship for himself, exalting himself. What sadness, one, what folly. Out of one moment, he's pleading for mercy, acknowledging that he's been wrong, and yet he turns right around and he hardens his heart again and again and again. And, and, and brothers and sisters, this evening, to, the, to the, the extent that we in our own lives fail to give ourselves to knowing and worshiping and, and walking with our God, we choose the way of Pharaoh. By God's grace, let us see it. That is not the life to which God has called us in Christ. He's called us, as God's new creation in Christ Jesus, called us to forsake the way of Pharaoh as we lay hold of our Savior. When Pharaoh said to Moses, you will never see my face again, what was Moses losing? He was losing nothing, and he was gaining everything. Moses would be blessed to seek another face, wouldn't he? He was seeking the face of God, and how marvelously he would go forth, and he would, he would speak to God face to face like no one in Israel ever, ever would. What a glorious testimony to that truth that God has called his people upward and onward into glory where we will behold the face of God in all of his glory. And even now we behold the face of God. What Moses saw only in types and shadows we've come to see in fullness with the revelation of Jesus Christ. What the Apostle Paul once wrote to the church in Corinth is every bit is true for us today as it was for them, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He wrote, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Whose face are you seeking? Are you seeking the face of your God? We, we say with the psalmist, bless the Lord, O oh, my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Will you give yourselves diligently to seeking the face of the Lord your God? Let us seek his face indeed. Let us say with the psalmist in Psalm 27, verse 8, You have said, seek my face. And what's the response? My heart. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Let us seek the face of our God. Let's pray together.